0: So, big thanks to Nick. So, here's the deal. This is, a, this is a great question. It really is. It's a tough question. As we thought about it, as we discussed and dug deeper, we realized that we're really asking a question behind the question. The question is one that digs down into the nature of God's character. When we ask this question about God's sovereignty, um, we're, we're asking stuff like, is he really sovereign? And if he is, is he really loving? Is he really for me? Is he really trustworthy? Right? And if he's sovereign, if God is totally in control, then isn't our choice just an illusion? And if our choice, if our free will is just an illusion, then how, how, how is it that he can actually be good and loving? How can a just God hold people responsible for their choices when he's in control of everything? Or maybe he's not sovereign then. Maybe our choices are, are, are free and we are in control and nothing is predetermined. So it seems like either God is in control, but he's not good, or God is good and he's not in control. And this question just dives deep into the character of God, but it doesn't stop there. It actually deeply affects us. It's it's, it's really practical. It affects us on Monday morning and how we live our life. The answer to this question will determine how you live. It'll affect your attitude towards life, whether you're optimistic, whether you're pessimistic. It'll affect your decision-making process, your relationship with God, your prayer life, everything. So this question is pivotal today. Let's dive into a classic text about sovereignty from Romans chapter 8. And let's see what God has to say to us about himself. And I've asked Romero to come and read this text uh, to us. Romans eight twenty-eight.
1: We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him but have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then <coughs> shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger of sword, as it is written. For your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Mm. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, (coughs) neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God.
0: That is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the word of God.
1: Thanks, Romero.
0: Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask you to open our eyes this morning. Help us to see you more clearly. Help us to love you more deeply in our hearts as a result of this, and to walk away, Lord, with a with a firmer foundation for our faith, more joy and hope than ever. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Such a rich passage there. Right? I wish we had time to walk all the way through it. Paul, Paul's saying something here, though, in these last few verses. Something that will, will absolutely change your life. It's the foundation that we really have to use to build on to answer this question today. It's the thing that he points out in this passage. is. I could sum it up in one word. Assurance. He says, this is the thing that... You can get it out every day. And if you use it, if you get it out every day and use it in your life, this thing will change your life. And as he expresses this assurance, for us, I think in our modern Western culture, it brings up our question today kind of naturally. It just kind of comes up. So we'll deal with that. And the question we're discussing today is just going to kind of come front and center. And I hope as we explore this question today, two things are going to resolve. My hope for you is that first of all, This assurance of God's love will become the bedrock of your faith and just free you from fear, fear associated with God, fear associated with your salvation. And you'll just be free from that to live in light of the love of God for you today. And the second hope I have is that this will just electrify your life, like charging your cell phone with lightning, that it's just going to just shoot the battery all the way up to full. And all of a sudden you'll have this new joy, this um, this will just empower your decisions and actions because you realize the very crucial role that your choices play in the plan of God. Okay, so we're going to discuss under three headings. We can be assured, why we can be assured, and how we can be assured. What, what is Paul's point in this passage? He's saying that there's a joy that you can have, that if you have it, will enable you to face anything in life without sinking, without crumbling. It's, it's a certainty that you can have. And, and that God doesn't just love you now. He does. God loves you in Christ. But that He always will. No matter what. No matter what comes your way, God will always love you. Nothing can shake that. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, no matter what. That's the assurance today. And the assurance in this passage has two forks. Once you've connected with the love of God through Jesus Christ. There's two forks that Paul says, and that's first of all, no matter how much bad is happening inside of you, and no matter how much bad is happening outside of you, you can be sure that God still loves you. Let's start with that, no no matter how much bad is happening inside of you. um, Sometimes we do some awful stuff. You know, I I don't know if you know this, um, but I want you to know there's stuff in your heart you may not even realize is there yet, when it pops out, you're going to say, I can't believe I'm capable of that. I can't believe it. And you're going to be so disillusioned with yourself. And when those times happen, what do you say? Man, I can't believe God can still love me, especially after that. Yet yeah, what does Paul say in this verse? Verse 33, he says, Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns. No one, Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So Paul's saying that nothing you can possibly do can you bring you back under condemnation. It's all covered, it's all paid for. God loves you no matter how much bad stuff happens inside you. That's good, right? Good news, but there's also hope today because God loves you no matter how much bad stuff is happening outside you. Did you see that list? Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. When bad stuff happens and everything is, is going wrong, how do we feel? Phil, God, God doesn't love me or he wouldn't let this stuff happen. Have you ever felt that way before? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Can I get a witness? <laughs> So bad stuff's happening inside us and we say, man, look what a mess I am. God couldn't love me. Or bad stuff's happening outside of us and we say, man, look what a mess life is. God doesn't love me. There can't be a loving God. But Paul says, oh yes, there can be. No matter how bad the mess is, inside or outside, you can be assured that God loves you. Because look what he says in verse 28. And we know that God works all things together for the good of those who love Him who have been called according to his purpose. Now, what does that mean? It means taken together as a whole, if you could see the entire story of your life laid out from start to finish, everything that happens, every single thing, God is working together as a plan for our good and for his glory. That's what it says. And the best incident, the best example I have at this, rather, is um, two incidents that happen at a place in the Bible called Dothan. The first one is um, Joseph, Joseph's in a place called Dothan. You guys remember Joseph in in Genesis? Abraham's great-grandson. And as he's there in this place called Dothan, he's thrown into a pit, and he prays for deliverance. God, deliver me from this pit. And he's met with silence. Pure silence. He's sold by his jealous brothers into Egypt, into slavery. He lives this miserable existence for years and years. Well, several centuries later, in the same place, Dothan... The prophet Elisha is there, and now it's a city. And there's all these enemies gathered against the city of Dothan. And and they're going to be wiped out. There's no hope. And Elisha prays for deliverance. And guess what happens? Immediately, immediately God answers and sends angelic hosts to come and free them and to defeat the enemy. Two stories, same place. Very different stories. But if you know Joseph's life, If you know that story, you know that if he hadn't been sold into slavery, if he hadn't gone through all of those years of misery and the stuff that he had gone through, not only would have hundreds of thousands of people died of famine, but his own family would have been destroyed by their own sin and he would have been destroyed. See, there's a truth here today. What this means is God was just as actively working things together for good in Joseph's life. As he was in Elisha's. God was, was, he was just as active in the seeming slowness and silence to Joseph as he was in Swift's salvation and the answer to Elisha. So Paul says that's always the case. That's always the case, no matter how bad it is, no matter how bad things are inside you, no matter how bad they are outside you, you can be assured that God loves you. And when Paul gets to the very end of this, I love this, he has this sweeping statement in verse 38. He says, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul says, I'm absolutely certain. And that word he uses there is this Greek word which means intense certainty. And it's like Paul just, just bursts. It's like he Runs to the, the limits of human language and says nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Nothing. And I know that there's people out here that have looked at this passage and they've said, well, yes, but. Nothing can separate you, but, you know, Paul's list isn't exhaustive. There, there's things not on his list, you know. Um, it says your present and your future, but he doesn't say your past, so maybe your past can separate. He says height and depth, but he doesn't say width. So maybe, maybe width can separate you. You notice he doesn't say you, you know, he doesn't say you can, you can separate yourself because what if you start out to follow Jesus and you turn back? You can lose your salvation. You can lose his love. But to say that's the, to totally miss the point of what Paul is saying here. His point is that God is sovereign, that God is, is Using his sovereign power to keep you in his love. And besides, he says that sweeping kind of statement at the end. He says, nothing else in all creation can separate you. That kind of covers everything else. I mean, you're part of creation, right? You can't separate yourself from God's love. And what Paul is saying here is that every possible situation that might turn you away from God, nothing will succeed. God's love is so powerful, it will keep you facing him, loving him. In His arms, no matter what. Here's your assurance, okay? That no matter what, all the powers of evil inside you and outside you cannot separate you or dislodge you from His love. Once you give yourself to God through Christ, He's yours. You are His. Nothing can ever change that. That's the assurance. And that assurance leads us today into the thick of this question how can we be assured? And that's our second point. How can we be assured? I mean, because wouldn't it be great if we could just believe that? You know, just like, yeah, I I believe that. I'm sold. I'm in. Cool. I'm never going to have to worry about my salvation. I'm never going to have to worry about God getting ticked at me. But yet, so many of us still struggle with that. And and in our Western culture, this promise immediately raises this issue. And the reason I say our Western culture is, is pretty important because we have this objection that really bothers us. All this talk about predestination and election and foreknowledge and God's sovereignty and God working everything out according to his plan. It bothers us. But don't don't forget who us is. Okay? Because there are other centuries, there are other cultures that this hasn't bothered. This is a problem for modern, western, enlightenment, drenched, individualistic people like me. Okay? And and it's always good for us to remember that because we don't want to absolutize any of our objections. They always arise out of our culture and our perspective. So we should take it seriously because we live here, but we aren't the only culture in the world, so we shouldn't see this as an insurmountable object of faith in Christ. But here's the thing modern people say when they hear that Jesus Christ will keep you in his love no matter what we do. We will never stop loving him, he will never stop loving us, and he's totally in control of everything. It's all working out according to his plan. The first thing that comes to our mind is hey, what about free will? What about human responsibility? Because it sounds like God is doing all of this stuff despite our choices. It sounds like um, everything is going to happen. is going to happen no matter what in spite of our choices. And if that's the case, who cares how you live? Who cares what you do? Right? I mean, if it's all going to happen a certain way anyway, I'm a Christian. So now I don't have to do anything. Right? He's just going to keep loving me. If that's the case, how can we be responsible for our choices? Because everything's working out according to his plan anyway. So it doesn't matter. So what happens to free will and personal responsibility? Great question. And we're reminded, it's, uh, it's actually a relevant question and a Western question in this recent Time Magazine article called Can Neuroscience Debunk Free Will? by David DeSalvo. It came out this year. And it's, um, it's kind of a survey of the current debate right now in the scientific community um, of whether we have free will or not. And he starts off the article saying this. He says... One of the lively debates spawned from neuroscience, from the neuroscience revolution, has to do with whether humans possess free will or merely feel as if we do. And he goes on to lay out this argument, kind of both sides of the current debate. And he ends the article like this. He says, our subjective understanding, like from where we stand, we're subjected to our, our framework and the way we think about things. Our subjective understanding about how we process information to arrive at a decision isn't just a theoretical exercise. What we think about it matters. And he's right. He's absolutely right. Because how we think about this issue drastically impacts the way we live our lives in a daily sense. And what's intriguing about this article for me is that now the question is, do we have free will or are we determined by our evolutionary biology? It's kind of like... um, the argument is natural selection is what determines everything about us. So we think we're choosing to love this certain someone, but we're actually hardwired to do that. Free will is an illusion. That's kind of the, the debate. Do we have free will or not? Are you tracking? Okay. And, and um, are, are we biologically hardwired? And it's funny to me because when I was in college, the argument was a psychological one, not a biological one. It was more Freudian. And that it was like, do we have free will or not? Are we completely controlled by our unconscious, subconscious desires or our pasts? But the thing you always see, whether we're talking biology, psychology, when this debate comes up is, in the West at least, it's always either or. It's a question of either or. Either we have free will or everything's determined. Or put it this way, we believe either we have free will and we're responsible for our choices and our choices matter and that means The future is open and undetermined, broad horizons. Or something has fixed the future for us. So now our decisions don't matter. It's either or. But in the Bible, it's never either or. From the beginning to the end, in principle and in practice, it's always this. You are responsible. You are free. Your your choices matter and you're responsible for them. Nobody's forcing you to make these choices. Yet... Every single thing that happens as a result of those choices is working out exactly according to the plan of God. And it's not just that God foresees what you're going to do, but rather what you do fits perfectly into his plan and the course he wants history to take. And there are so many examples of this. I could give you, uh, I'll give you two. Uh, first in principle, listen to these Proverbs from Proverbs 16. Solomon, wisest man, whoever lived Proverbs 16, verse 1, he says, To man belong the plans of the heart, but from the Lord comes the reply of the tongue. The heart of man plans his way, but it's the Lord who establishes his steps. You hear that? To you belong the plans of your heart, but what you do as the result of those plans comes from God. To you belong your plans, but when you actually speak or act, that always fits in with God's plan. Always. That's astounding. See, on one hand, it says your plans and your choices, they belong to you. They're yours. They're not coerced. You can't say, hey, I couldn't help it. God made me do it. The devil made me do it. No, they're yours. You're free. You're responsible. And yet, the result is always exactly what God wants. And you say, how can that be? I don't get it. Well, that's because we're Westerners, right? Right? And it's always either or. Why does it have to be either or? Isn't it possible that God could arrange and fix things and at the same time not violate your free will? Why couldn't God do that? You say, oh, I couldn't imagine how I could do it. Yeah, but of course you can. not You're, you're kind of underqualified for that job. <laughs> I like what Matt Chandler says. He says, trying to figure out God is like trying to catch a fish in the Pacific Ocean with an inch of dental floss. Here's, here's an illustration that may help this. Um, J.I. Packer explains it in, in this way in uh, an incredible book called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. If you uh, get a chance to read it, I highly recommend it. And he says that our relationship, or the, the relationship rather, of our free will and our responsibility to God's sovereignty and control of all things is an, uh, an antimony, That's what it's called. An antimony is not a contradiction, it's an apparent contradiction. And the example he uses is light. You guys remember studying light in school? Okay. So we know light sometimes behaves as what? Waves. And other times, how does it behave? Particles. Yeah. Yeah. And so sometimes it acts like it's not matter. Sometimes like it is. Sometimes it acts like it's not waves. Sometimes like it is. We don't know how that could be. Nobody has figured out how that's possible or how that works. But we know it does work that way, so we work with it. Because otherwise, scientists, you know, you just you just wouldn't know how to deal with light. You couldn't do any experiments. And so J.I. Packer says it's obviously not a real contradiction. It's an apparent contradiction, and we don't have enough knowledge to figure it out. Here's, here's a quote from the book, a couple of quotes. He says, what then should we do with an antinomy? Accept it for what it is and learn to live with it. Refuse to regard any apparent inconsistency as real and put down any semblance of contradiction to the deficiency of your own understanding. Think of the two principles not as rival alternatives, but in some way that at present you do not grasp, complementary to each other. This is how modern physics deals with the problem of light. And this is how Christians have to deal with the antimonies of the biblical teaching. And here's, here's the truth behind this. Like, this is easily said, but not easily done. For our minds dislike antimonies. We like to tie up everything in a neat little intellectual parcels with all the appearance, appearances of mystery dispelled and no loose ends hanging out. But you see what he's saying? He's saying that on one hand, God's setting and fixing everything exactly as he wants. That's, that's what happens. But he doesn't do that despite our choices. He doesn't through them. Our choices are part of his plan. And so you say, oh, well, okay, so he just knows where we're going to choose, right? Yeah, but it's more than that. See, there you go. You're trying to do the either-or thing, right? No, it's, it's both and. D. A. Carson says it like this. He says, the sovereignty, responsibility, tension is not a problem to be solved. Rather, it's a framework to be explored. Or as my wife would say it, they go together like peanut butter and jelly. She's famous for that saying. And she, it's true. They do. They're, they're like, they're great on their own, but they go together so well. Why would you separate? You know what I mean? Peanut butter and jelly. Come on, people. <laughs> so um, that's one example. Another one is, is uh, both J.I. Packer and D.A. Carson talk about this in their books. After the crucifixion, you guys remember in Acts chapter 2, Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost? And he says something really key. He says this in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. He says, This Jesus... Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. See that? Plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed. He was crucified by the hands of lawless men. So Peter's saying on one hand it was absolutely necessary. It was part of God's plan that Jesus Christ was going to die. Yet at the same time, those of you who crucified him, you're utterly responsible for what you did. What you did mattered. You're responsible for what you do. We're responsible for our actions. Nobody's forcing us to do anything. God is not forcing you. If you do something stupid, wicked, selfish, cruel, there's going to be bad consequences. People are going to hold you responsible. Society will and should hold you responsible. God will hold you responsible. Like the proverb said, your plans are yours, but whatever happens from our choices is set under the sovereign control of God. Nothing happens It's not according to his plan. Your plans belong to you, but what actually happens is completely set and fixed, both at the same time. I know we want to say, well, like 50-50, 70-30, 90-10, like what's the ratio there? And so, no, it's 100% free and 100% determined under the sovereignty of God. Douglas Wilson says it this way. He says, guys, God is not an actor within the larger scheme of things. No, he, he's not a muscle-bound Jupiter bullying the little ones. No, he's, he's the author of the whole thing. We never ask how much of Hamlet's role was contributed by Hamlet and how much by Shakespeare. It's not a question that can be answered with 70, 30, 50, 50, 90, 10. The, the right answer is 100, 100. Hamlet's actions are all Hamlets and they're all Shakespeare's. Of course, our human categories can't work that out, especially in the West, right? We have that either or view. Um, if you go to literature, there's. You guys remember the story of Oedipus? Classic Greek literature. Yeah, so Oedipus, he gets the prophecy that he's going to grow up, he's going to murder his father, and he's going to marry his mother. And what's he do? He lives his entire life trying to avoid that. Every decision. But in the end, what happens? He marries his mother and kills his father. Yeah, no no matter what choices he made, his choices didn't factor in because his destination was just fixed. It was set. His choices didn't play into it at all. But if you go into American literature, another famous person in American literature, uh, Marty McFly from Back to the Future. <laughs> yeah, I love the Back to the You guys like Back to the Future movies? Okay, I'll watch them any day of the week. But Doc, at the I think it's the end of the last one. Uh, when they go back to the West. Um, and he's, he shouts from the train, I think it's the last line in the movie, and he says, um, your future is what you make it, so make it a good one. That's <laughs> as only as only he could say, right? Um, we love that, don't we? U.S. popular culture loves that. We believe that. Your culture, yeah, I mean, your, your future's open, it's whatever you make it, so, so make it a good one. Here's the problem. The problem is, if you believe either one of those Separate from the other, you're cooked. It's like a scientist treating light as just waves or just particles. You're refusing to live by the full truth, and it's going to have consequences in your life. It's impossible to live a healthy life that way. And here's what I mean: There's this um, a awesome example in Acts chapter 27. Uh, Paul and his whole crew is shipwrecked out at sea. They're in a storm. The ship's tearing apart in the middle of the storm everybody's afraid they're going to die. And in the middle, I think it's in verse 22, yeah, this angel comes and says, even though the boat will be lost, not one of you will die. And so Paul believes this. We know this because he goes out and he tells the captain and tells everyone, don't be afraid, guys. The storm is bad. The boat is going to be lost, but we're all going to live. That's good news. It's awesome. But then what happens a few verses later, in verse 31, verse 31, Paul sees some of the sailors freaking out and they're heading for this lifeboat. And Paul says to the commander, keep them in the boat or we will all die. It's like, what? How how does that make sense? We'll all die. Like, why didn't Paul say, hey, God has promised nobody's going to die, so it doesn't matter what you do. Go to the lifeboat, don't go to the lifeboat, you know, boat, go snorkeling. It doesn't matter. You know, just live however you want. Who cares? What's going on here? See, We believe that if it's fixed, then our future is fixed despite our choices. So our choices don't matter. But Paul has a biblical understanding of this. Our choices matter, absolutely. But they don't determine the future because because they matter, because we're responsible for them, because there will be repercussions for our choices. Paul's not passive in that situation. But because they don't determine the future, he's not paralyzed. He's neither passive nor paralyzed. He has peace in the storm, literally. He's got a level head. He's able to act in faith. See, if you believe everything is fixed, despite our choices, you'll be passive. It'd be like the guy who loses his job and his friend tells him, hey bro, don't worry, man. God's gonna provide. He's like, really? Yeah, just trust God will provide. So he just goes, lays home in his bed all day and never goes out and gets a job and just expects magic checks to show up in the mail from God. Like, son of God, right? <laughs> You'd be like, "What? That guy's crazy." Well, yeah, exactly. Exactly. If you believe everything is fixed despite our choices, you'll be passive. But if you believe our choices determine the future, you should be paralyzed. But Paul is neither. It's incredibly practical, right? And you say, "Wait, wait, 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 wait a second. Why should we be paralyzed? I believe my choices determine the future. All the movies say so. Back to the Future says so. The Matrix." Have you seen these fans? Yeah, I have. <laughs> I would say they're wrong. Okay. You should be paralyzed, and here's why. Okay, um, There's this short story by Ray Bradbury called The Sound of Thunder. Great story, if you haven't read it. If you haven't read it, you've probably seen this storyline in countless Star Treks and Doctor Who episodes. Okay. but um, It's about this illegal time machine. And this guy named Travis, who for a lot of money, he will take people back into the past to see the past. And this man named Eccles becomes his customer. And Travis tells him, hey man, listen, when you get back to the past, there's going to be an anti-gravity metal path. Six inches off the ground. And though we are going back into the past to see how things work, you must not get off the path. Don't even touch a blade of grass. Stay on the path. And Eccles asks him, he says, well, like why? That doesn't make sense. And here's what Travis says in the book. He says, say we accidentally kill one mouse. That means all the future families of the families of the families of that one mouse, with a stamp of your foot, you annihilate a billion possible mice. Well, what about the foxes that need those mice to survive? For one of ten mice, a fox dies. For one of ten foxes, a lion starves. Eventually, a caveman goes out hunting for food, but you've stepped on it. So the caveman starves, and from his loins would have sprung ten sons, and from their loins, one hundred sons, and thus onward, a billion others, yet unborn, are throttled in the womb. Rome never rises on its seven hills. Step on a mouse and you crush the pyramids. Washington never crosses the Delaware. There might never be a United States at all, so stay on the path. Never step off. By the way, Eccles uh, does step off the path. He's too curious, and he steps on a butterfly and crushes it. and changes everything, and when they get back, um, to, the, to, back to the future, um, Travis realizes he shoots him. It's a pretty awesome story, um, but it's a, power, it's a powerful story, actually. Um, Don't you see what it's saying? It's saying that every single thing in history is interlocked, interlaced in infinite ways of every little change. Every little change changes everything. Now, if that was really completely determined by you or I, I don't know about you, but I don't have a millionth of the wisdom necessary to make those choices. None of us can possibly anticipate all the changes. And the good news here today is that you don't have to. See, on one hand, you're absolutely responsible for your choices. You're, you're responsible for them. You're, they are free. Nobody's forcing you to do them. And if you make bad choices, there will be consequences. But God is the one in charge of the future. God is the one overruling everything so you can rest in his sovereignty and work out of that confidence. He's at work so you get to move forward without being paralyzed. But if you think that your choices determine the future, then, then I mean, that's, that's bad news. Free will, if that was true, would be the worst gift ever. You shouldn't even get out of bed in the morning because you might step on a mouse if you live in downtown. And it's bad news. It, it would be bad news, but it's not. Instead, what we can be sure of is this what Paul says all things, all things work together for the good to those who love God, even though it's very intricate, even though we hardly ever see how. I mean, we rarely even get a millionth of a millionth of the glimpse. Of how God is working all things together for good to those who love God, but but He is. Often we're a lot more like Joseph than Elisha. We're in the middle of of long moments of tragedy and misery, not wondering, or, or left wondering, how this could all work together for the good. But you can trust in God's character and believe that He is in control, that He is actively working. God's control is good news. So you can be assured that no matter how much bad is happening inside you or outside you, God is in control. He hasn't abandoned you. He loves you. And once you see not only that we can be assured and why we can be assured, we have to ask how. How we can make this practical. And um, lastly, this, this is important because there are tons of people walking around the streets of San Diego saying, yeah, I believe in a God of love. I believe God Loves me unconditionally. Loves everyone. I believe he loves me no matter what I do. But here's the deal. For most people, it's not changing their lives. Why? Because it's abstract. It's a concept of love. It's not operative in their lives. And here's how this can change your life. You have to personalize it. And you have to personalize it two ways. You have to personalize it, uh, this assured love of God in you. And you have to personalize the assured love of God in Christ. So first of all, how do you personalize it in you? Here's what I mean by that. I just gave this little intellectual uh, dithy, whatever, um, framework recap, you know. Uh, how do you deal with the divine sovereignty and human responsibility? Well, it's an in antimony. It's a apparent contradiction. We don't have enough knowledge to understand it. It's like light, right? Waves and particles. And that means we're responsible and we have to do things, but at the same time, God's totally in control. And when it's all over, everything happens according to his will. Isn't that interesting? Yes. Yay. Okay, it's a nice little framework, but I want you to apply it to you. I want, I want you to personalize it right now. I want it, you apply it to yourself, to your relationship with God. Do you have a relationship with God? Have you gone to God through Jesus Christ? Have you been baptized into Christ yet? Because here's how it works. If you, if you think of your relationship with God as a door, And you come up to the door. This is an old example. I love this from from Bible school, but it's a great example. As you come up to the door, over the door you see written, Matthew 10, 32. Whosoever will confess me before men, I will confess before my Father. Whosoever will, right? In other words, as you're coming up to a relationship with God, you're told you have to do something. You have to make a decision. Commit. Don't be passive. But if you actually do, if you accept what Jesus Christ has done, if you open that door and you walk through, when you turn around and look, Back over the door on the other side, you see written, John 15, 16, you've not chosen me, I've chosen you. And John 6, no man can come to me unless the Father draws him. Everybody who has ever come through that door realizes at some point, in spite of all the work they did, in spite of all the commitment it took, and the sweat they spilled to make that commitment... When you get in, you start to look back and say, the reason I got in, the reason I'm a Christian is not because I'm more spiritual than anybody else. It's not because I'm more humble than other people. It's not because I'm more zealous than other people. It's simply because God kept pushing and pressing and pursued me and sought to love me until he caught me and he broke me open to him. Therefore, what makes me a Christian is simply that God came to me Not because it was smarter or more spiritual or better in any other way. It's a gift of grace. It's free, absolutely free and totally sovereign. What does that mean? I'll never forget, uh, Tim Keller was preaching on a passage in Deuteronomy 7.7 and it's um, spoken by God through through Moses to the people of Israel after he brings them out of Egypt. So if you can just imagine Charlton Heston with the cotton white beard saying this. um, The Lord did not set his love upon you, O Israel, because you were the greatest of people, for you were the least of all people. No, it was because the Lord loved you that he brought you out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And I'll never forget him saying, do you see the logic there? I didn't love you because you were greater or because of this or that. No, I, I brought you out because I love you. It's, it's circular reasoning. I love you just because I love you. And... um that's that's brilliant. Like, let's apply this. Let's apply this to your spouse, is what he says. And he says, um, you know, your spouse comes up to you and says, "Do you love me?" I say yes, dear. Yes, I love you. And of course, spouse normally says, "Why? <laughs> Why do you love me?" And um, he says, "Now, look. If you say I love you because of this or that factor, um, immediately the person's identity now shifts to that factor." Because if that factor is the basis for my value, that factor is what secures me love. So Keller says the only way to really answer that kind of question is to say I love you just because I love you. And he says that's, that's not even just sweet talk or rhetoric, but in fact, there's no other way for love to offer. When God says that to you, when God says, I don't love you because you're more spiritual or humble or enlightened or amazing or or whatever. When God says, I love you just because I love you and you love me only because I kept after you and after you until I finally broke you open. That transforms. That transforms your identity. Why? Because finally, I don't have to be the smartest. I don't have to be the best. I don't have to be the most spiritual or the most committed. Finally, I'm loved just as myself. See, if the reason that God loves you or other people love you, maybe it's because you have a great career. But what happens when you lose that career? You'll never be able to handle losing that career. Maybe it's because you're talented. You'll never be able to handle competition. Maybe it's because you're so whatever, fill in the blank. You'll never be able to handle failure in that area. But the divine, sovereign, electing, adopting grace of God Who loves you just because he loves you? That'll transform you. That'll change you. Have you personalized it? You have to personalize it in you. And finally, in closing, you have to personalize it in Jesus. And what do I mean? People say, oh, I believe God loves me. I believe nothing can separate me from his love. But don't think about that love abstractly because Jesus is the love of God. In the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross, do you know what was happening? all of the greatest forces of the universe were arrayed against Jesus. And he could have stopped it. He could have stopped the rejection. He could have stopped the the torture. He could have stopped the death. The rejection of his father, the eternal justice coming down on his head. All he had to do was give up on us. All he had to do was, was walk away. That's it. That's all he had to do. But I love what Charles Spurgeon says. He says, Christ Jesus was up on that cross, nailed, bleeding, dying, looking down on the people betraying Him and forsaking Him and denying Him. And in the greatest act of love in the history of the universe, He stayed. Bomb after bomb after bomb was coming down on Christ Jesus, trying to get Him to drop us, to separate Him from us. And even hell itself couldn't do it. He stayed nothing, nothing, can separate him from us his love from us he held on to us he was our savior he died for us and now that's how you know that nothing can separate you from the love of god guys it's not an abstraction today oh i just believe god loves me unconditionally no he loves you counter conditionally he loves you against conditions because of jesus when you see that christ jesus never gave up on you no matter what came down on him That's how you know with absolute certainty, like Paul said, that no matter what bad you find within you, no matter what bad you find happening around you, that nothing can separate you from his love. He hasn't abandoned you. Yes, your choices matter. Yes, your actions have consequences. But here's the gospel. The gospel is Jesus paid the eternal eternal consequences of your sin on that cross. Why? Because he loves you. He loves you. Because of the cross, even our most broken places are being redeemed. Because of his sovereign love, everything is working out for your good and nothing can separate you. Do you get Like, if he wouldn't abandon you then, he won't abandon you now. If he wouldn't abandon you when hell itself was coming down on his head, he's not going to leave you if you have a bad week. He's not going to run the other way because of some challenge of an addiction that you haven't been able to break yet. He's for you, he loves you, he's with you in it. Do you believe that? The father spared not his son. If he wouldn't spare that, do you think he's holding out on you? If someone bought you a multi-billion dollar gift, do you think he'd skip on the wrapping paper? This is the love you've been looking for all your life. Let's pray. God, we we stand in awe of your love for us in Christ. It's it's mind-blowing to me that you care about Every detail of our lives, and there really is bad news. The bad news of your word that that we are responsible for our choices. A lot of us have made some bad choices. This year, this, this week, stuff we're ashamed of, stuff we don't want anybody else to know about. But the good news of the gospel is that because of Christ, for those of us who have found ourselves adopted into your family, you are using even the most broken parts yourself your sovereign plan for our good, for your glory. The good news is that there may be people here today who are standing at that door. They're ready to step in and your word says, whosoever will, I pray you'd call them right now, Holy Spirit. I pray that you'd give them the faith and the courage to step through the door of a relationship with you and embrace the love you have for them. I pray for those of us who are still stumbled by this antimony, boggled by this interplay of your sovereign control and our responsibility. I pray you'd give us the faith to accept what's beyond our our current understanding and ability to understand. I I guess if we could figure it all out, it it wouldn't be faith. Um, But I I pray you'd help us to, to trust you with mysteries that are beyond our comprehension and to choose to trust your character, to personalize your love for us. To believe that what you say to us in your word is true, that you do love us, that nothing within us or without us can separate us from your love. All because of what Jesus has done for us. Living the life we couldn't live, dying the death we should have died, rising again in victory over sin. I pray that the truth of your goodness and love and sovereignty would just set us free today. As we come down here and take communion today in groups of two or three, I pray that Holy Spirit, you speak through us to one another, encourage us, remind us of the good news of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray.